Welcome to episode 76 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. Thank you so much for joining me today. And today I thought I'd talk to you about two things. One is kind of a backtrack and it's just some information about what might have been going on in your hives in late summer and early fall. The actions that are mentioned in this thing I'm about to read to you, it's probably too late to do those in most areas of the country because it involves feeding feeding kind of thin syrup. So I want to be very clear, do not start on those actions now because it's probably too late in most areas of the country. But if you're in a warm area of the country, it's possible you might have uh, have some time. So I ran across this on a Facebook group, and it was from Ken Warcall, the Massachusetts State Apiary Inspector. And he had written a letter, and again, this was back in the fall, early, early fall and late summer, but I didn't see it till just recently. But I want to share this with you. He says... We have had a tremendous amount of very hot and dry weather this summer that has brought about a dearth in the nectar flow over the past three weeks. The conditions have caused many plants like goldenrod, joe pieweed, and fall asters to shut down their nectar flow in order to conserve energy. The bees have felt the impact of this over the past three or four weeks. The spring flow that allowed the bees to fill their brood chambers with ample honey has now been depleted in many colonies. This effect has been amplified, especially if you removed honey supers and extracted them for your own use. In my hives and many others, I have noticed little or no honey stores in the brood chambers, with the honeybees lethargic to near starvation. The bees have become a little more aggressive. However, even more important is the fact that many queens have cut back on their egg laying, with many cutting back totally on egg laying. Many of you called me thinking you've lost your queens or that they're laying poorly. Many, as a result, have tried requeening. Before you take this action, check for the queen in your colony. She may have a much thinner abdomen as a result of ceasing laying eggs, and she is moving around much quicker. This lack of egg laying may have a negative impact on your colony as the winter cluster which your September and October bees produce will be much smaller going into the winter months which could have a negative effect on brood rearing starting in early February. What can you do? Again, this is the part. It's probably too late to do, so don't just run out and do this. <laughs> this is Lee. <laughs> okay, he says, you may have honey stored in your honey supers on the hive, but the lack of nectar flow has caused this behavior. You could try feeding to stimulate the queen into thinking there's a nectar flow. I've done this in a number of my hives and found that the queen started up with egg laying again. I've used extracted honey from my own hives, which is important to prevent disease from any other honey, which stimulates a nectar flow and the queen started laying. This is better than sugar syrup that has no nutrients for bee health. I put a half a, half a cup of hot water per gallon of honey to make it more flowable and do jar feeding on these hives. The other thing I've noticed is a lot of supersedure taking place with the bees mainly blaming the queen for the conditions and trying to replace her. I would make sure the queen is still alive and cut those cells out as supersedure is a long process at this late time of year, especially when you had a good queen before these conditions. Remember, your bees need you more than ever in times like this. Don't ignore them as they work hard for us, and so let us reciprocate. Get into your hives and evaluate the stores and take action if needed. 
They will need a lot of stores for the winter months and also a lot of brood, so let's give them what they need. If you have no honey, then sugar syrup to keep them from starvation, especially if the dearth remains. My hive scales and others have lost a lot of weight over the past three weeks. I write to you here to ask you to help save our bees in this time of bee desperation. For the bees, Ken Warkall, who again is the state apiary inspector in Massachusetts. So I want to talk through the points in some of this because in this short letter, he had a lot of uh, things that took me a long time to learn. And it mentions the person who shared this, how he is a beekeeper of long experience. What he's talking about is when you can see the flowers out in the field, but they have no nectar. And I mentioned this, I think, in the last one, that goldenrod is especially finicky about this. And some years it won't have nectar, even if there is decent rainfall. But if there has been a shortage on rainfall in your area, then goldenrod is very apt to not have any nectar in it, even though the fields and roadsides might be full of it. Joe Pieweed and fall asters, I did not know that they also are, um, I guess all plants are sensitive that if they don't have enough water, They're going to stop producing nectar and they're going to uh, just put all their eggs in the basket of trying to survive versus so much trying to reproduce. But what this does is it can be very confusing. If you're seeing all those late summer wildflowers out there and you're thinking, yay, my bees are getting lots of nectar. Or here what I found is that occasionally I would even smell a little goldenrod and then go out there and check in the hives and it would be a very small amount and they would be using it pretty quickly because then we would have a day maybe with some a little bit of rain or just the misty, foggy conditions that we get up here a lot that they're not very prone to fly. So what I was finding when I actually went in there, looked around and lifted the hives was there was just nothing to speak of. And so I like how he spelled that out, and particularly for beginners. But this is the the really, well, one detail that I want to bring to your attention. If you ever open a hive in, in a normal temperature, a normal summer inspection temperature or fall, but anyway, a, you know, a good, like a, anything 60 degrees and sunny. If you ever open a hive and the bees are moving like they're in slow motion, they're just barely moving around, let a big red flag go off in your head because that is a sign that they are literally starving to death. They have so little food that they can't even move very much. I had this happen one time on a hive And at the time, I had not put it together. I'd never seen that before. So I opened it up and I'm like, wow, you know, it's like they're really cold. But it wasn't a cold day. It was a warm, sunny day. And they were just moving in slow motion. And then when I started looking in the hive, I saw why there was not a drop of food. And so I fed them thin sugar syrup since it was in the summer. And it was unbelievable. Like the next day, they were back to normal bees. And so I kept feeding them and boosting them up. So that that's an important thing to learn. It's one of the things to train your eyes to. If, and also, just anytime you open the hive and something doesn't seem right to you, then don't panic, but just really try to start looking around and see what's going on. He mentions the bees becoming a little more aggressive, which they do naturally toward the end of summer because often there's a dearth, depending on where you are. And then in the fall, they become uh, quite protective of their hives. So if you ever notice that behavior occurring at a time it doesn't normally occur, that could be another sign that they need food. But this part I thought was so interesting that he, well, and so helpful that he tied together when there is a nectar dearth out in the world and the queen cutting back on laying. Because I've mentioned this in several recent podcasts that this was a big realization for me of how 
after the solstice. There is a natural process. The queen is not in the build-up mode as much as the slow-down mode, kind of getting ready for winter, but she is still laying. However, if there is a cutoff in the nectar, if you have one of those sensitive lines of bees, then it's very possible that she cuts back on laying to the point that you will open the hive and think you don't have a queen because either there's so little brood that you don't see it or you're like something's going wrong with her. And my friends who raise queens say that they get so many calls at this time of year of people that, oh, my hive has gone queenless. And that might be true, but with especially with newer beekeepers, about 90% of the time, it's not true. And the queen rearers get picky about that because they know if they sell you a queen that and you put it in there and there's a queen, then it's going to get killed just right away. And so, you know, a commercial producer will just sell you one with a small and go, hey, take it, enjoy, you know, because it's it's just cash in the cash drawer. I shouldn't say that. Some, some of, some people would treat it like that. But if they are a really ethical queen rear, they, they kind of don't want their, their beautiful handiwork of this queen that they have helped raise, you know, just being bought just to be, just to be killed. So keep in mind that that is a possibility in the late summer or any time there is a nectar dearth that she will cut back. It's actually a good sign in that she is a responsive queen because the other genetic variation like with the Italian queens can be they just keep raising babies, keep raising babies, and they starve because of the dearth. So while this is, I mean, to me in my yard, the responsiveness to nectar is a very good trait to have. It might, tends to make them quite frugal with their honey stores. However, it also creates a very small cluster in fall when the bees are naturally dying off. And that small cluster going into winter gets even smaller with the natural die-off. And it very easily could pass the threshold, whatever the threshold is in your ecosystem, in your microclimate, below which the bees freeze, particularly if there's a, a hard, sudden cold snap. That can be the case that they just get too small. So often we hear lectures and lectures and lectures on if your cluster's too small in the winter, if you do an autopsy on a hive that didn't make it and you have a little tiny cluster, then it probably was mites. And if you look on the bottom board and there's a bunch of mites that died with the bees, then yep, it was probably mites. They could also be small because of the viral impact of mite exposure in the summer However, there's also this other possibility. <laughs> so there's always like, you know, there's a thousand ways that things can go wrong for bees, which to me is part of our role as beekeepers is to uh, assist those that would otherwise die from natural weather variations and all this type thing. And again, I do not mean reproducing genetic lines that just can't seem to get it together, but we just don't raise bees, at least for us hobbyists, we don't raise bees in the quantity that can sustain Mother Nature's weed them out principle. And also in this world, I mean, unless you literally live in the middle of a forest and are not keeping the bees in boxes, then you're really off the table of, of Mother Nature's selection process. And you've, in my opinion, you have moved the process to more of an animal husbandry selection process. So I won't get in because y'all know what I think about that. But anyway, I thought it was very important because this lack of eggs in the late summer, it can be a real mystery. And also when they decide to supersede the queen or replace her, 
in the in the early fall, for example, maybe when all the half the drones are already gone. I thought that it was great that he put that together with the dearth because I really never thought of that exactly. Where I've run into that of the bees trying to supersede their queen at a time, even though she's a good queen, at a time that did not look promising to me, then it's been a case of she ran out of room to lay. I've seen this a lot in nukes. If she runs out of room to lay, then the bees go, wow, she's not laying very much. She must be a dud. Let's get rid of her. And that impulse can be stronger than their impulse to observe the uh, <laughs> the climate and season conditions. So like he says, natural queen replacement is a long process. And if they start that too late, then that hive will be unsuccessful. And if you let that supersedure cell stay in there too long, that virgin will emerge and kill your mated queen. Because if, if there's a virgin and a mated queen, then 99% of the time it is the mated queen that's going to die. And that is the least helpful at that time. So I loved it how he folded that information in there that um, when she starts laying poorly because she's being fed poorly, they might take it as time to replace her, but the season might not be right. Now, then he talks about going and he's talking about feeding liquid feed. And that's the part that in many areas of the country, it's too late to feed liquid feed because if the syrup is below 50 degrees, then the bees can't take it up. And remember, if it gets cold at night, because it does have sugar in it, it might take all day to warm up and then it gets cold at night. So it's never going to warm up enough. I will tell you a little technique I tried this fall uh, for some hives to give them some steady nectar because we were in very much in a dearth to give them steady nectar in addition to the robin hooding of honey frames that I've told you about. But what was happening is our nights were cooling off the jar. These are actually mason jars that I have the, uh, the through the lid feeders. These are migratory tops with a hole in them that you can put a mason jar on top of the hive. Or if you're really having to load them up, like in the late summer, if they're really too light, you can put the, uh, the upside down bucket thing on there. I really love these outer covers. A friend gave them to me. And at first I was like, I don't know if I need those. They have been the handiest thing because if you have a hive that needs to be fed, the beauty is the feeding jar or bucket is on the outside. So it makes it so simple to uh, keep it refilled or keep it fresh or keep it warm, whatever the case may be. And on the warm part, I had the mason jar on some little bitty um, hives, giving them some nectar to keep that queen laying because she has to get a brood nest of a certain size, even though these are late season mating nukes that out grew up kind of at the last minute. And even if they go in the shed, they still have to be a certain size to get through and come out with enough bees on the other side to grow in the spring. And that's a big important point I'll talk about later. But these outer covers, I love them because first of all, you can see how much they've taken. You can just glance at it and go, oh my gosh, they, they drank that thing dry or, oh, they're not taking much syrup at all which in some cases can be a signal that there's some type of problem with the hive or, or your problem with the jar lid or a problem with, you know, a million different things. But I love being able to see it. But what I did to make the syrup stay warmer in the day, now it's a glass jar, so I don't have the problem of if it's a plastic jug and it gets warm, it will squirt the syrup out 
from expansion. And that can be a real problem if you if it causes robbing, especially if it's a small hive, it can be a death sentence. So these are glass mason jars, you know, upside down on top, stuck through the hole in this cover. So what I did is I had some of those paint buckets from Lowe's. Now, this is not a metal paint bucket, but the plastic they're kind of a milky, heavy-duty plastic, and they sell the paint buckets like you can put extra leftover paint in them, and they have a, a tight lid, and you buy them separately, which is handy if you want to use them for this. So that was like a, a heavy-duty, almost clear plastic bucket, and I would turn that upside down over the mason jar, and it creates a little greenhouse, essentially, for the mason jar, and of course, I had a brick on top of that because the wind is starting to kick up here in the mountains, at least at our farm. And I've loved it. Those little greenhouses warm the syrup up much quicker in the morning because it's plenty warm in the day for them to take a little syrup and to be out flying and all that. But it does drop down in the night below 50 degrees and and chills the syrup. So anyway, these clear buckets upside down to make a little greenhouse around the mason jars, which are on the outside of the hives, have been so handy, and I've really uh, enjoyed that. Now, he mentions in here about essentially very lightly watering down honey to feed back to the hives. And if you have excess honey, there's definitely, I mean, people do feed back extracted honey. There's a there's a lot of risk involved in this. I mean, if you want to see something start robbing, it would be putting honey out there. So you have to be super careful with it. When you add that water, notice it only adds like a half a cup of hot, hot water to a gallon of honey. You don't want to water it down much because it will ferment very quickly, much more quickly than white sugar syrup, which will still ferment pretty quickly if you don't put something like Honey Bee Healthy or vitamin C powder or something in it. I know there are beekeepers who put a little tiny bit of, of bleach in the syrup to keep it from fermenting. But I've I've heard too many beekeepers that I respect say, no, nah, don't do that, that I don't know the exact chemistry, but it, it just, it seems like that would take the pH in the total wrong direction. And I don't even know enough to say, but I, I just don't, I just don't do that for safety. And using a little Honey Bee Healthy, um, I've got all my entrances reduced. So even though that smell does, can really stir them up, they're, uh, they're pretty protected out there as, as best I can. And also I'm not doing some kind of big open feeder type. Every, all my feeders are closed. So they're either the round bunt pan looking rapid feeders, which I really like those. Those are handy for a lot of reasons. You can also feed dry sugar in those round feeders that, that if you're familiar with cooking, look like a bunt pan. To feed dry sugar, now there's a couple things to consider here. You take off that inner cup so that they can get to the sugar. When it's got liquid in it, there's an inner cup that keeps them from drowning. And oh my God, if you ever forget it, they will drown like crazy. It's a terrible thing. So the inner cup is for liquid feed. But if you're using it for dry sugar, which because the thing sets over the hole in the inner cover, and then you put a box around it and put the outer cover on top, it picks up all the moisture that's that's kind of chimneying up the hive. And so you can put dry sugar in there and then shortly it will be wet. And you can kind of get an idea of just how much water is coming out of there. Now, if it's so cold that they can't leave the cluster, then they're not going to be able to get up in that feeder, which is very important because if it's if you're down to emergency feeding of dry sugar and it's too cold for them to leave the cluster, then you want to put them you want to put it usually they people put it on newspaper on right on the top bars 
or maybe a neater and easier to refill way is to put it on the inner cover. Now, don't make it so high that it lifts the outer cover up so that things can get in there on warm days. But just if you sprinkle it around, then you can actually, and put it right close to the the hole, you can see how much they're consuming by just crack, you know, cracking the lid and lifting it up and looking. But we'll talk more about winter feeding. But in these final few minutes, I want to share with you the title and a little very short reading of a book It is A Book of Bees by Sue Hubble. It was published in the mid-80s. So when you read it, (laughs) it might strike you like, wow, beekeeping sounds so easy, except for the lifting and the bears. But it was pre-mites. Sue Hubble was a commercial beekeeper in the Missouri Ozarks. And she wrote this book like a memoir. And so it's not a how-to book. It's like a memoir. But it has a lot of of how-to information, and you just have to keep in mind that it's very dated. It is uh, compared to kind of the situation now. I don't think there's a mention of hive beetles in there. There's no mention of mites. There's things you can do, you know, back then that you can't do now, and, and things that you have to do now that you didn't have to back then. This was the book that got me started beekeeping. The double whammy was my friend Charity, who was keeping bees at the time, let me come over in the springtime and be with her when she did her first spring inspections. The smell of those hives, I don't know what I was sold. It was, <laughs> if you were a, um, an old time Star Trek junkie, the the episode where there's a woman who her her tears have some kind of chemical. And if you like touch the tears, then you're absolutely crazy, like just crazy devoted to her. Of course, Captain Kirk touched her tears and then he was just like nuts for her until they found the antidote or whatever, because I don't think she was a good character <laughs> anyway. Okay. Forgive me for that one. But that is how the smell of a beehive was for me. I took one inhalation of that heavenly smell and that was it. I've been obsessed ever since. And then shortly after that, someone gave me this book and it was a done deal because I read this I maybe the winter before I got bees and it was just, it was hook, line and sinker for me. So I'll read you just a little short passage Again, Sue Hubble, A Book of Bees. The book is arranged in chapters for the seasons, and it starts with autumn. The beekeeper's autumn. For a long while, for nearly 40 years, I never had bees. I can't think why. Everyone should have two or three hives of bees. Bees are easier to keep than a dog or a cat. They're more interesting than gerbils. They can be kept anywhere. A well-known New York City publisher keeps bees on a terrace of his Upper East Side penthouse where they happily work the flowers in Central Park. I've had bees now for 15 years and my life is better for it. I operate a beekeeping and honey-producing farm in the Ozark Mountains of southern Missouri. I keep 300 hives of bees separated in groups of 10 or 12 in what are called outyard, land that I rent from other farmers at the cost of a gallon of honey a year, rent I pay to the farmers for the privilege of putting the bees there. The farmers and their families like the honey, but they like having the bees on their land even better. The clover in their pastures is more luxuriant because the bees are there to pollinate it, and the vegetables in their gardens and the fruit on their trees benefit from the bees too. My best and most productive bee yards, however, are those near towns, because townspeople plant flowers and water their flowers in clover-scattered lawns, providing the bees with a constant supply of fresh blossoms to secrete nectar, which they turn into honey. Every once in a while, I read in the beekeeping magazines about someone who's had complaints about his bees. I'm always astonished because everyone here has a fine, friendly feeling toward them. My own beekeeping operation is a matter of minor local pride and is the interest 
is the focus of interest and curiosity. People come out to my farm and ask if they may tour the honey factory. I'm asked to speak to local civic groups and high school biology classes. The bees themselves are regarded with a certain amount of affection and good humor. The town in which I live is very small. All the other farmers raise pig and cattle, and making a living from bees does give them something to talk about down at the cafe other than fescue foot and the price of pork belly. Cows and pigs are large animals, and the farmers keep track of them by putting a numbered ear tag on each beast's ear. It tickles their fancy that someone can make a living with a bunch of wild bugs who can't be pinned and marked, but who fly everywhere, unruly but helpful, pollinating plants and making honey. They enjoy telling jokes on me, I know. Nelson is the town wit. Like any Ozark storyteller, he piles outrage on top of outrage without even the smallest trace of a smile. It was Nelson who, straight-faced, spread it around town that when a swarm of bees gathered on my mailbox and stayed there for several days, it was because I had not put enough postage stamps under their wings. Nelson said it was a well-known fact that with proper postage, a bee could travel anywhere in the continental USA. Of course, if they go abroad, he said, the rate is a little higher. Seems like... A smart lady like Sue ought to know how much postage to put on a bee. I was sitting in the cafe one day when Nelson and some of the other good old boys with Nelson deadpan say, Say, one of your bees was over bothering my peach tree this morning. How did you know she was mine, Nelson? I asked, looking him straight in the eye. I was determined to put up a fight this time. Nelson hadn't expected my question. Well, they're all yours, aren't they? I thought you owned every blessed bee around here, the way you're always talking them up at the Chamber of Commerce meetings. No, that isn't true. There are wild ones and trees all over. And then Henry has some, and so does Billy right here in town. I'll tell you what you got to do before you carry on about my bees bothering your peach trees. What do you have to do is go over to that tree and check the ear tag on the bee. The first thing I do after a new bee is born is to put an ear tag on her ear. You check the tag and tell me your number, and then I'll let you know if I'm going to accept responsibility for that bee. Nelson threw back his head and laughed. A report of our exchange went around the cafe. This was several years ago, but even now, every once in a while, someone will stop me in town and say, Hey, bee lady, I saw number 357 on a clover blossom in my lawn yesterday. That so? How she's looking? Just fine. Better, in fact, than last time I saw her when I thought she looked a bit peaked. Good to hear she's improved. So anyway, you can get the tone from this book. That's just a few pages. Um, it's a delightful book. And she goes through the whole season. And there's actually a whole bunch of how-to, um, just of general terminology. So if you are a new, especially a brand new beekeeper, I, I recommend this book. Just remember a lot of the uh, kind of the technical how-to may not be applicable, but the stuff about equipment and how things are done, you will be learning the traditional way on all those things. So I'll wrap things here for this week. I hope you are having a good week and taking care of each other and being careful out there in the world. We need all of you to stay healthy so that you'll be ready to do bees in the spring. And also, I I won't be doing it with this book because all I have is an old first edition of this book. And it's kind of one of my, uh, it's it's on the treasure shelf of my bookcase. But I have a quite a few bee books of various kinds that I might do a short reading, tell you what I think about it, and then give it away to one of the patrons over on patreon.com slash five apple. I'll do something like have the patrons comment on the post and then do a random number generator and send it to you. So if you have a box of bee books sitting around that you were about to take to the thrift store, if you feel like you're able to put them in one of the postal flat rate boat boxes and send them to me, I will be glad to give them away. 
to other listeners. If you're a patron, I'll give them away to the other patrons. And if you're not, I'll give them away to the listeners in general. I sure don't mind paying postage to get more good books out there. And if you're a publisher and have some good books that you would like to share reading copies that I will give away on the podcast, I'm glad to do that. Or if you know a publisher, tell them that I will be glad to do that. My email is blueridge714 at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to every single patron. Keep this show on the air. Keep it going. And I'll talk to you soon.